Welcome to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Getting Common covers a variety of topics and features guests from business, law, politics, government, education, and some of the most insightful entrepreneurs. It's a refreshing, common-sense approach to some of the most important discussion points today. Now, here is your host, Carlos Chapman. Good morning, everyone. I am Carlos Chapman, your host of Getting Common. In my day job, I'm an associate professor at Washington and Lee University School of Law. Um, The topic of today's episode is the business impact on human rights with my guests, Erica George and Marissa Jackson. So Professor George is the author of this book, Incorporating Rights, Strategies to Advance Corporate Accountability. And our discussion today will center on the premise of this book and her other scholarship. I'll start by having them introduce themselves. Um, Erica, you can go first. Uh, Carlos, thank you so much for having me. I was saying earlier that this is such an honor, and I really appreciate how you bring conversations to a broader audience. So um, I am Erica George. I'm the Samuel D. Thurman Professor of Law at the S.J. Quinney College of Law at the University of Utah. And I also direct the Tanner Humanity Center in the College of Humanities. This book is the product of over a decade worth of work, um, combining my academic scholarship and before being in the academy, work I did as an advocate when I was working with Human Rights Watch and informed by being a corporate attorney when I was in practice. So it really um, attempts to integrate and summarize um, ways that we should be thinking about business. Awesome. Um, I recommend everyone pick it up. Um, it it really is a great book that puts a lot of things together. Um, a lot of things that I think different audience of people have been talking about for a long time. And it's got some palatable solutions, in my opinion, uh, for resolving some of the human rights issues um, that corporations are facing. So I appreciate you for, for putting this out in the universe and for sharing your brilliance with the world. So thank you so much. All right. Now, Marissa, introduce yourself. My recurring guest, Marissa, like she's Hi. on the show like every month. <laughs> Hello. It's um, like I'm Marissa Jackson. So I am Carlos lets me tag along and I love doing so. It's an honor to be here um, hyping up. I am a hype woman today. I am hyping up um, Erica George, who um, is literally the embodiment of what I want to be when I went to law school. I am also... Mm-hmm. Uh, an assistant professor of law currently at St. John's University School of Law. And um, it's just really nice to be here. I have specialized in human rights during my practice, um, but Erica is an expert. And so you will just hear me cheering um, today. Awesome. Yeah, it's it's the Erica George fan club today, in case y'all couldn't figure it out. Like, that's what this is today, in addition to talking about some law. So, Marissa, I'd love for you to kick us off with something really basic. you know, the word human rights gets thrown around. Like I've been throwing it around since undergrad when I didn't understand the difference between like a human right and a constitutional right. So just, you know, for our audience, explain what are human rights? Right. So human rights are meant to be the sort of full swap of like entitlements that you ha- like have as a human being, whether they are civil and political, whether they're social, economic, even environmental rights. And even the word human rights um, 
there are questions about even the framing of that, because, of course, when we talk about environmental rights, we're also talking about the rights of, of, of beings that are not necessarily human. Right. Um, so. Right. There's a question about what are the limits or like how, you know, how do we frame human rights? But that's what human rights are. Now, in the United States context, American context, it, it's often boiled down to civil and political rights. So I used to work at the New York City Commission on Human Rights and I got there and I was quickly told that, oh, this is actually a civil rights commission. I was like, oh, because you call it human rights, right? And so um, we often as Americans forget or actually sometimes uh, reject the economic, social, and cultural rights that also belong to us as people. Awesome. Now, Erica, when I think about rights, I think that's something for the government. That's not something for the private sector. Mm -hmm. So why should corporations be concerned about human rights? You know, Carlos, that is not an incorrect um, perception. It actually was quite common until very, very recently, relatively recently. Um, Because when we think about human rights, it's the government's job to promote them, to protect them. Um, If we're in a social contract theory society, you're giving up some of your liberty in order to be protected by government. And the private sector hasn't officially taken on those obligations, but the understanding now is that businesses have a powerful opportunity to impact and influence whether or not we enjoy our rights. Um, There have been arguments that businesses have no obligation because if we look to, Marissa spoke about the morals of human rights, but there's human rights law. We have international treaties that protect civil and political rights, some that protect socioeconomic rights, those the United States have not ratified and signed. But if you're France, you could enter into an international agreement um, to protect human rights. If you're Facebook, you're not a state. International law doesn't recognize you as such, but you also have vast power over public information and public discourse that arguably shapes the space of democracy. So to say that there's no obligation um, is really ill-informed. And we now have policy mechanisms and a broader understanding that recognizes that businesses have impacts. And because of those impacts, there are responsibilities attached. Now, you know, we we had, had Shakira Sanders on a couple of weeks ago who was talking about the First Amendment. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, for our audience in America, are our constitutional rights, human rights, um, are human rights bigger than constitutional rights? Like, how does the, the, the paradigm play out? You know, I think of them as interrelated. If we look at the framing instruments of modern international human rights, the United States had a significant influence on that. Eleanor Roosevelt was at the drafting and part of the drafting of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And it's grounded in a broader understanding of freedoms. What are the things that we need to flourish as humans? What are the things that we are entitled to um, by virtue of being human, our basic dignity. So that's a full range. That isn't just the liberty element of an American conception or a Western liberal conception of government, don't tread on me, don't bother me, don't interfere, let me be free to speak or be free from searches and seizures. It also entertains the notion that I have to have an enabling environment to be able to have access to food, to be able to live healthily, to be able to most recently, and this is an exciting conversation, the UN Human Rights Council has recognized that there is a human right to a clean and healthy environment. This wasn't in the earlier instruments that ended World War II. That was a human reaction to a human atrocity. We saw Holocaust, we saw states sit by because 
the idea was that states could make their own law. So if Germany wanted to make a law executing millions of people, it wasn't anybody else's business. That's no longer the case. It's all of our business when rights are being violated. And it is increasingly the business of business to be concerned about that too. And look at the ways in which they're culpable, connected to, or causing some of these violations. Now, Marissa, you've written about Detroit. You've written about some other kind of U.S. atrocities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would love to hear your perspective on the relationship between, you know, American constitutional rights, American rights, and, you know, the interplay of, of human rights. Sure. Um, so uh, the, fir- the first thing I want to say, so I, I guess I'll answer it in two parts, and I won't, I'll try not to be long-winded, is that, so Erica was just talking about the, the UDHR, the Declaration of Human Rights, which even though it was written in the 40s, has been one of the most progressive, like and like broad conceptions of human rights. However, it's not legally binding, right? And so it's like if you think about it in just in terms of law, I think we sort of curtail the possibilities of human rights. So to answer your question, right, in our constitution is a legal document, right, that binds our our Supreme Court. Um, and you're right, this binds us all. Um, but because of right, the limitations on, 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 on how, how it was written, the fact that we judge the Constitution as sacrosanct and not being able to be sort of like transformed beyond the amendments that already exist. And because right now, you'd write Judge KBJ is yeah. even being asked, like, will you do anything? to sort of move from beyond, right, the existing text and also the existing prevalent human judicial interpretations, it, there are restraints on um, how our constitutional jurisprudence can keep up with contemporary international human rights norms. Mm-hmm. In Detroit, that was a huge problem, right? The Detroiters went to the UN and, right, and the UN came, the UN actually came to Detroit and said, you guys are cutting people's water off. Like this is morally wrong. It is also wrong as a matter of international law. But Detroit, the mayor of Detroit actually used an argument of natural, national sovereignty against the United Nations to sort of say what, what we do to our citizens here is none of your business. Um, and, you know, that we had to go through the normal sort of court system of Detroit, uh, Eastern District of Michigan uh, judge, right, heard the case and was like, yeah, we know that the United Nations came here, but this is what the U.S. law says, right? And if you don't pay your bills, you can't have water. So you see there's like this tension, right? We we have a constitution that does um, enumerate a few rights, if you ask the Republicans, they'll say just a few, <laughs> not privacy, not this, mm-hmm. not that, just a few. Um, we have interpreted, right, a number of rights into, right, some of our provisions of substantive two process rights, et cetera. Um, life, liberty, and property tend to capture a lot, but they can't keep up with what business is doing in Detroit or Flint. They can't keep up with what government is doing, right? Informed by business decisions in Detroit or Flint or Jackson, Mississippi, or you know wherever have you. And so, um, 
for me, there is just a real tension. And as a human rights advocate, I lose faith sometimes or I'm frustrated with the human rights regime because our best human rights law can't even reach us here in many ways. Like if you are a Detroiter without water, if you haven't had water in seven years, it's almost like what good is the United Nations to you? Like I'm saying this as a firm believer in the United Nations of human rights, but what good is it to you because of our constitutional structure? Now, Sorry, this is a good, <laughs> no, no, it's, it's a good segue though, because yeah. we're talking about corporations and I, you know, I brought up Detroit because there's this kind of public private relationship between, you know, how they're providing water and how they're providing utilities. Um, and it's a great segue to talk about like, what roles are corporations playing now in human rights violations? Like, what are some of the examples of things that corporations are doing you know, in the interest of maximizing profits and, and possibly not paying attention to outside stakeholders um, that, that make it harder um, to, to give everyone human rights. Um, and I'll, I'll go back to Eric on that. Are there, there are some examples of things that corporations are doing um, in playing a role in human rights violations? Um, absolutely. And in the book, I go through different industry sectors and talk about the ways they're related to the realization of human rights. So, um, Again, if we take the information communications technology sector, they're implicated in issues of censorship um, and surveillance, right? We understand that facial recognition technology is being used in cooperation with policing, with, in cooperation with making decisions at borders, and um, disproportionately, those are having negative impacts on people of color. So that implicates issues of equal protection, equals of access to information, um, arguably even issues of the ability to participate fully and freely in government if you're being fed disinformation and being dissuaded from participating in exercising your franchise. Um, other things, um, we are in a COVID crisis, access to affordable medicines. Um, one of the canonical examples I discuss in the book are the activism around getting access to affordable antiretroviral drugs in sub-Saharan Africa during the last pandemic. Um, there were serious questions about profiteering and what are the obligations of being open to compulsory licensing. Um, the intersection of the environment and the ability to dissent. So if we look at extractive industry sector activities, whether we're in the Niger Delta, where environments are being polluted and activists are literally losing their lives when they try to protest this, or we shift that to the Mississippi Delta and Cancer Alley along the Louisiana Gulf Coast, there are similar kinds of challenges that affect the human right to health, assuming we accept that it exists, international law tells us it does, um, and who's disproportionately impacted. So there are ways in which vulnerabilities get exacerbated, existing conditions can be worsened. Um, the Democratic Republic of Congo has been in conflict for years. The cobalt, coltan, gold, tungsten that's in the devices we are using to have this conversation um, come from that region. And that helps to fuel armed conflict where people are suffering. So there's a connection to suffering that is linked to supply chains that I think we can disrupt. And then I think some business actors are actually interested in doing, not being connected to severe human rights violations and atrocities. Now, you know, why do we need corporate cooperation? Isn't there enough that, you know, can't we just pass a statute? Like, mm -hmm. why do we need to you know, have corporations have the motivation to do something? You know, this comes back to a conversation I remember having with um, someone actually working in enforcement. And I think it was, maybe it was USDA or FDA. 
if even if we took seriously wanting to eradicate forced labor on farms or in agriculture, there are not enough enforcement officers and government anywhere to go to every single place and check every single thing. There has to be some internalization of the norm that we're going to respect workers' rights, right? There has to be some internalization of the norm that we're not going to violate the privacy of our users. Um, because the enforcement costs of monitoring everything at all times is simply beyond what government can do. And I don't know that most in business would want that kind of constant government oversight. So we are seeing more self-regulation, more internal grievance mechanisms, but business has to be part of the solution if they're going to be connected to contributing to the problem. Um, it's something that requires a multi faceted multi-stakeholder solution. And there's some interesting um, initiatives underway, but this is not something that government regulation can do alone, even assuming there were the political appetite to have more business regulation. Now, you know, I'd love, I know a lot of folks may think, you know, what's the big deal here combined with, is there anything we can do about it? Right? Like that's kind of the dual human yes. problem why should I care? Or I care, but what can be done about it? Um, so Eric, I'd love to pivot to you again. Are we doing anything now uh, to stop corporations from committing human rights abuses? What's what's out there happening now for the folks whose hearts are in it after yeah. hearing us and, and want to know if all hope is already lost? Um, okay. I really resist inevitability and possibility. There's nothing we can do. I mean, these are huge problems. They are huge issues. We know that Coca-Cola is in more countries than their member states of the UN. There is infinite influence, but we also influence business, whether it's through the purchasing choices we make, our personal procurement, government procurement and contracts, um, and investors. So asking questions about the process that's being used to make your products as a start um, on the personal level. And then retail investors, there's more demand for disclosure on social issues. There are conversations about integrated reporting. Um, for those in the business securities law community, you know that you're doing financial reporting. Companies expect to do that. What if that were integrated and connected to the kinds of social and environmental issues they also influence? Um, there's a lot of interesting regulatory activity in Europe. Um, France has now something called the duty of vigilance law, which means that businesses should be doing active investigation into human rights due diligence, not just the typical financial due diligence you would do if you were acquiring a company. Um, if you're going to be doing a particular set of business operations, what are the risks, not just to the business, but to these other stakeholders? That needs to be considered. And that also needs to be shared. That needs to be shown to the investing public, the consuming public. Um, the European Commission now has a directive on mandatory human rights due diligence. Um, that's under debate and discussion. But taken together, what the conversation is, is about the relevant information that we need to have um, as citizens, as consumers, as investors, to make choices. And in a competitive market environment, information and choice um, is connected to profit making. So if we can build into the cost of doing business, the consequences of the adverse impacts, the attachment to abuses, I think that'll move us forward in ways that will be significant. So it's not impossible. There's not nothing you can do. And businesses are quite responsive to perceived reputational risk. I mean, the 
arguable rush to move out of Russia or reduce ties given the Ukraine conflict. Um, I don't know that that's something that we would have seen a decade ago. Business was more easily able to say, look, it's not our responsibility. That's just the operating context. I think there's a better understanding now that they are actors and roles in shaping and changing contexts, and we can help and shape them. Marissa, would you like to add anything? Um, I agree with everything that Erica has said. I think that um, the sort of era of information that we're in right now, like social media has had a great impact. And I think a lot of what is um, actually pushing possibilities for integration of human rights into corporations is actually coming from grassroots. So, you know, you know, every so often you'll hear, okay, we're all boycotting Amazon. And we know it makes no difference, right? Like to Jeff Bezos, like he's still mm-hmm. trying to get, right? He's still going to mm-hmm. be trying to get his back through <laughs> that, that bridge in Amsterdam or whatever, Rotterdam or whatever. But um, the fact that those conversations happen and keep happening, right? And they start to become part of your consciousness, right? I care a lot about zeit, like social zeitgeist, right? Um, right? It makes a difference politically, which then transforms, whether it's, it, it might not lead to huge shifts in oversight, but once you start having people like AOC, like get on CNN and talk like, uh, unabashedly about rights, um, and her expectations for right financial regulations or business in the context of human rights. When I start, when I saw that happen like a couple of years ago, I was like, "Wow, this is actually a shift. Like this is mm-hmm. there's a mainstreaming of that dialogue." Um, even the racial justice movement that we're currently in is contributing to that. And also, right, we saw that that was made possible because of what happened with Occupy like eight years previous, previously. Mm-hmm. So I think that the speed at which information travels, um, which enables people to sort of quickly mobilize around issues, even if the mobilization is somewhat superficial, we start to change our human expectations. Um, and we start to, you know, I mean, we were talking about the Delta crisis in, in Nigeria. I, I think I was maybe an infant, maybe not even a, maybe not even oh, yeah. born when, when Ken Sarawil was hanged. But as an adult, I have never purchased gas from Shell. Now, do I, does it mean that the other oil companies from where I'm purchased, from which I purchase gas are doing a better job? No, but that reputational damage to Shell, right? As someone who, right, has family in West Africa, I will probably never, I drive right past Shell. I, I, there, are, there are many of us who will never. And so I think um, everything that Erica's saying is right, that the reputational impact now that, um, that companies face and they know that there's going to be someone on Twitter holding them accountable um, actually is going to make a difference. And I think it's actually going to inform future generations of politicians. Oh, I will say that the conversations around business impact and human rights, um, while they're sort of like somewhat speeding up and getting traction here in the U.S., in an African context, these are standard conversations for people who are like our age or even younger, right? The even though the they the framing might be different. It's like, okay, you're coming here to do business. Are, are there going to be jobs? Like, are our conditions going to be improved? But conversations around pol- pollution in Senegal, right, are everyday conversations, and they expect answers, whether they receive the responses that they want or not. The citizenry expects 
discourse and dialogue on these. So I think what's happening in the U.S. is that we're just, we're used to leading. We're not necessarily leading these conversations. I would say like younger Africans, like, right, all the progeny of people like Kim Sarawiwa are leading these discussions and holding um, companies accountable. But those of us who are here in the West who actually have more power, right, our money goes a little bit further. We need to catch up because we actually will empower the people on the African continent whose money, who have loud voices, but their money goes a little less far, mm. right? But I think, I, think, I think progress is actually happening. Like I'm not as depressive as I was when I was talking about the journey. Can, can I follow up on Marissa's yeah, point? Because absolutely. She, she is absolutely right. There, there isn't organized coordination between voices on the ground and investors planning their pension funds. And if that connection could be made, if there could be greater understanding of what frontline communities are facing and what somebody who does have discretionary income decides to do, I, I think there'd be broader impact. Um, yeah. And then also worker voice, I also wanted to mention. So this, this consciousness of Gen Z, um, of people who are now entering the workforce, they're asking a different set of questions. Um, there were apparently a bunch of Google engineers that were concerned about the development of Dragonfly and how the Chinese government would use that. There are people inside businesses or the kinds of talent that businesses want to attract that have higher expectations and some ideas about what they want to be affiliated with and what they don't want to be affiliated with. So I think that's also going to help shift the conversation. But a lot of this is cultural shifting, um, the courage of leadership and market demand that can come from us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think there's a lot to be learned from younger people internationally. Um, you know, even just, you know, the attitude of our current students where, you know, they demand work-life balance and they, you know, aren't just going to jump at the highest paying job if it's, it's, if they're not doing things they believe in and if they don't have the lifestyle that they want, um, it's, it fascinates me. Cause I'm like, I wasn't that independent of a thinker yeah. when I was in right. law school. Right. I was a lot less, I felt like it was risky. And I think the world yeah. has changed where it's not as risky for them, um, to make those choices because they've collectively, you know, decided like, I don't want to buy from this company or I don't want to work for that type of business or, you know, they, because they've, they've realized their power. Or um, I wonder if their risk calculus has changed. I mean, they are facing a very different changing environment than we did. So yeah. I don't know if it's more options necessarily than more integrity and just knowing that they are in a decisive decade. They're a decisive generation about what's going to happen with our climate, what's going to happen with our social climate. Um, but I, I too am seeing that shift in my students. Yeah. Well, and I think it's the access to international information as well, right? Like it was not, I could not easily talk to someone in a foreign country every day, the way that I can now on Twitter or the way that I can now, whereas I talk to, like, I forget where people are located, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because yeah. of social media. It doesn't matter. Media. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, I think about like, think about everyday things that we, like even we as women, right? Think about what is like, going to Sephora 10 years ago versus there's an expectation your cosmetics are going to have say things like made with clean products or, you know, it made with, you know, invested in like some women in Sierra Leone, like we gave our product, right? Those are some, those are, those are real shifts that have happened over the last 10 years. The, the body wash that I used today, it was talking about, it said 
clean showers are a human right for all. And mm. it, when I buy that, it is extremely overpriced, but I, I tend to buy it because I'm like, oh, they have mobile trucks that are going to like, sh- like give showers to people who live on the streets. And also it smells fantastic, right? But it's, just, <laughs> it's, it's prominently located in all of the packaging, right? That showers are, are human right. And that's, of course, like if you go to the hum- United Nations and say our showers are human right, it's like, mm, that's not in any of our conventions explicitly. Well, but sanitation and health. Sanitation I mean, all of health. this is interrelated, interconnected, right. interdependent, and it's a matter of how we frame it. But for a business to say, to assert that it is a human right makes it more possible that the recognition of that right does become more explicit within international law. So it does make a huge difference. Um, It's just about a matter of how far we take it as a society. But I think that because I, I really do believe that in the American context, specifically, and perhaps everywhere, but specifically in the American context, we are going to have to continue the grassroots movement. I think that's what's going to actually make the difference. Like you're not, I can't rely on Tom Tillis <laughs> to yeah. expand the human rights mm-hmm. interpretation or enforcement. No, no. Was Tom Tillis the one who thought we should let states ban international marriage or was that a different one? I can't remember. But he, um, he, oh. was, he was talking today about he watches Law and Order from time to time. But, you know, I just, again, yeah. no. Yeah, he's not it. No, <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's not going to be our, he's not going to deliver us from anything, no, yeah. from anything. No, 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 no. no. I, you know, I think the other thing that, you know, Marissa brought up a good point that I didn't put in the, the outline, but uh, the thing that we can do is make consumer choices. Um, and I, I see that again in my students and the younger people, you know, it's like, I will see, you know, the Patagonia or the, like there's certain brands that I see on my campus. And it is because of sort of the, the, either it's a B Corp or it's the, like, they care about where they purchase from in a way that I don't think I, I just wasn't aware of it and didn't think about it. You know, I bought things because they were cute or on sale. I wasn't Mm -hmm. like, I'm going to save up for the Patagonia because, or Mm -hmm. I'm going to save up for the X um, because, and I think younger people do, or they just don't buy at all, which is fascinating to me. You know, yeah. And there are, so um, we haven't talked yet about the UN Development Goals, Agenda 2030. One of the goals, and I think this is interesting, is about responsible consumption. Mm -hmm. And it does invite us to think about our choices and our patterns and how this is connected to life on earth and life in the sea. So there's water, there's gender equity. But there is this understanding that we are active agents and being possible drivers of change. And, and to the decisions that are being made, like purchase Patagonia, um, those are more expensive because they're costing in doing better, using organic cotton, making sure that they are. Um, I actually, in full disclosure, sit on the board of the Fair Labor Association. Um, This is a group that was formed after students decided they didn't want slave labor in their university licensed garments. It's a multi-stakeholder organization. And the businesses that do want to be on campuses licensing and selling um, become part of this organization. They are transparent about where they're sourcing from. They make open audits to these factories. They have employee grievance mechanisms. And 
they have the university caucus that is informed by a business caucus that is coordinated by a fair labor association and involves civil society um, organizations, not directly labor unions, unfortunately, but these groups get together and they were one of the first multi-stakeholder organizations to say, we cannot source from Xi'an China because of the Uyghur situation. We must assume that there is forced labor. So you've got to take your supply chain and connect it somewhere else, right? So enforcing those choices, again, this is all policy and their own internal commitments and done through their contracting, but it's being done and it's being done in response to the understanding that a powerful consumer group that is having changing tastes actually care about this thing. And companies like Patagonia involved, Nike is also there and Adidas, um, different companies have different portions of their market participating, but they're shaping conversations with one another informed by civil society. Um, and they're there at the table listening. Yeah. You know, I think the one thing that, you know, it took being more engaged and, and more, I guess, woke and reading more is, <laughs> is learning that like some things are cheap for a reason. And those things are cheaper um, for a lot of bad reasons, right? Like there are some things that are just on sale. Um, and there are some things where, you know, how do you make a shirt for $5? How do you, like, what does it take in the supply chain um, to, to get some of the products that we used to overly consume? And I think, you know, the thing that I have learned from the younger generation, when they, they, they spend more, they probably spend the same, but they buy fewer things because they invest in like, you know, was this made with child labor? Where did the cotton come from? What, you know, what kind of factory is this? And, you know, you've got to make the investment in other people with your dollars as well. You can't just blanketly consume things that are cheap, um, you know, as we used to, and we'd go to like rainbow and all that, when we were in college, <laughs> you know, all the super, super cheap things. Yes. Now uh, I would love to ask you both of us a follow-up. Do you feel there are mechanisms that are currently in place that aren't properly utilized or that were underutilizing? Um, you know, it could be anything from, you know, things in the U.S. system or things in the U.N. system that just we aren't using them enough or properly. So um, may not be a popular opinion, but I think I'm encouraged by real opportunity for shareholders to actively own I know one choice is to boycott, to disinvest, but um, I'm interested and encouraged by the ESG movement, environmental social governance, in, impact investors, but active shareholders. So um, for this book, I spent time interviewing the kinds of people who write these shareholder proposals. This is the idea that if you own a certain number of shares, you can put forward a proposal for everyone to vote on. And increasingly, they speak to social issues. So I talk to organizations that author these things. And um, while they don't expect shareholders to vote in majority, what they do want to do is raise awareness and get corporate policies to change. And they've done this successfully, whether or not their vote to, say, put a human rights expert on the board of this corporation passes or fails, um, they get this issue raised as an agenda item. Um, I think also corporate board and corporate governance, there isn't sufficient expertise on environmental and social issues on too many corporate boards, and that needs to change. I think this is part of the broader conversation on diversifying corporate boards and leadership and management. Um, so I think that's an untapped place for 
leadership that knows these issues, that's well-versed in these issues to be parts of those conversations. Yeah. And I like that suggestion because it really is something that we can all do. You know, we all have, or most people, if you have a job, you probably have an automatic retirement account. Um, And that retirement account is investing in the market. Um, And so there are things that you could be doing as an investor to be more activist and to to hold corporations accountable. And, you know, I think, you know, the problem is we, we, we all, I know I passively invest and I do this where it's like, I know I've got my TIA account. I know that I just pick aggressive or non-aggressive or whatever, and I let it go. But the truth is I should be reading that prospectus that I get, and I should be paying more attention and thinking about what I'm doing when I send in my proxy instead of just letting it passively go. And that's something that anyone with a retirement account can do. They can pay more attention. Yeah. As you so, sorry, I was just going to say, as you so has been doing some really interesting work. Um, Their shareholder advocacy organization, they have now indicators and rankings on gender diversity, on ocean plastics. They've really taken specific issues and moved them forward. Um, And they're a wonderful resource if people want to learn more about how to go about doing this. Um, Also, the Interfaith Council on Corporate Responsibility, they were active in um, the anti-apartheid movement. They continue to take on issues of forced labor and supply chains and um, racial equity. So I commend people to those two organizations if they want to learn more, as well as the book. (laughs) That's what I was going to say. Number five, pick up that book. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Um, I, I remember. So that's when I started to learn. I was like, oh, like, oh, we're ESGs and SRIs and right. And that, it's all there in the book. Um, it's a great book. Um, my answer may surprise you, Carlos. I think we need to focus more on antitrust law. Um, I think antitrust law is extremely important. And I think there's going to be some movement in Congress this year. Um, actually, um, Senator Klobuchar actually did ask um, Ketanji Brown-Jackson yesterday about her views on right the Sherman Act and like antitrust because, right, I am skeptical of capitalism generally. But really where my skeptic, my, 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 what my distaste is for is corporatism, right? What, what I can't deal with is, right, the idea that one company will become so powerful and so omnipresent that it doesn't have to answer to anyone, right? And so I think actually that antitrust is key to, right, and the, like the way that Senator Kobachar says, making capitalism work, the way I might frame it is in maintaining the possibility for human rights accountability by corporations. Because when you do have to compete for business, everything that we've been talking about so far becomes more effective, right? The activism becomes more effective. The shareholder activism is more effective. When companies have to compete um, for business, for reputational standing. Um, I know that um, Erica does a lot of work on corporate rankings, right? Human rights rankings, right? Rankings don't matter if there's only one of you, if there's only one airline, yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. Don't let spirit take over. Please don't <laughs> let spirit take over. Please don't do that, right? So it's yeah. like, I think one of the reasons why, for example, Europe has done a little bit better on a lot of these issues is because, for example, they have, maybe only just like, you know, maybe like the UK, for example, only just has one extra political party, but that one extra viable political party makes a difference. Mm. That 
compete for those votes. You so people can push you on issues. It's the same with business. Okay, like I was, I think I was, I was giving a talk yesterday. It's like the people talk about the personal is political. The commercial is political too, mm-hmm. right? You should have to compete. And when you have to compete, the the likelihood that you are going to care about the environment and people's human rights and human development is greater because the people who are buying from you do. Yeah. Antitrust. Important point. Yes, the rankings all depend on having competitive choices and alternatives. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I love that you bring up antitrust because for years I've had this paper planned that was going to be a part of my pre-tenure plan that I was calling the end of antitrust. And, you know, essentially I was talking about how, you know, tech conglomerates and the way that we define markets makes it so difficult to catch an antitrust violation before it's too late. You know, Mm -hmm. everyone talks about breaking up Facebook, which we possibly could. It's ironic because I'm now streaming this on Facebook, but what else? We talk about, you know, breaking up Facebook or breaking up Google and breaking up, but how much easier would it have been if we didn't let Google acquire all these little companies along the way and like kill their patents or shelve their patents. Like what if we would have properly defined markets? Um, And it's really hard to have a law that is so old that existed before we even had computers to apply that to tech, right? Like, and to, and to never change it. Um, It just, so I, something has to be done with antitrust for sure. Um, Cause it, you know, it's, it's a flawed system. Um, and even I, I feel like I have friends who used to, to practice antitrust law um, and there just aren't many people our age doing it or younger doing it. Cause it's, it's kind of become a dead letter. It's it, you're right. It is underutilized. Yeah. And I think foreign countries do better at, you know, putting restrictions on us corporations that are sprawling yeah. uh, than we do in the, in the States. Um, it's possible to become a behemoth um, now. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with being a multi-billion dollar company, but there is something wrong with having such a big market share or, or, or enough And abusing share. that market share yeah. to exclude yeah. competition of others. Yeah. Um, in my prior life, my first job as an associate was a Jenner and Block, and it was an antitrust practice that was breaking up AT&T. Um, but yes, you, you don't see much activity. I gave yeah. a lot of my life to antitrust at Davis Polk. Okay. But then I left. <laughs> uh-huh. and, but, you know, and we were not breaking up. We were <laughs> folding together, right? We did uh-huh. NBC Topcast. Okay. We did that deal. We did. Um, and um, yeah, I, I would say, um, you know, this idea that you can't do anything about Amazon, that's, they don't feel that exactly that way in Europe. Right. And so it's like, yeah, better regulation does matter. Um, but I do think like I I think some of the work that I like to do is to just get things out into the mainstream so they become part of people's dialogue. Like I want people to be looking for antitrust work to be done in Congress. Like I know Senator Kobachar says she's gonna be doing a lot of work on this. I want us to expect that to be done, right? And not mm-hmm. have me something that's just very esoteric and relegate it to write the Senate chambers or the, you know, the halls of Congress. So, um, yeah. 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 All right. So what I'd like to do for our last segment is to have you speculate on new policies and what the future could hold and to be a little more positive, right? Like we can end (laughs) on a positive note. Um, so I often say like, you're a genie and you're rubbing the bottle or you are, you can wave a magic wand 
Erica, in an ideal world, what would it look like to hold corporations accountable? And, you know, you can highlight some of those amazing ideas you have in your book of if you were queen of the world, what you would do uh, to implement some of these policies. Oh, wow. Um, I, I think I would advocate for a shift in advocacy ownership. I, you know, there, there's multiple things. I'd like to see more information from businesses about their impact. I'd like to see human rights due diligence. Significantly, I'd like to see remedy for people who are injured by business activity, having access to effective remedy that isn't happening for people who have been injured by business activity. I'd like to see more market demand for more responsible business. I think that's occurring, but there really isn't a a single thing that is going to shift all of this. It'll take many things and it will take a conception of business responsibility that's more expansive than it's been before. And um, in understanding that our choices have consequences and that we're holding business leadership accountable. Um, So I'd like to see a sea change in who's making decisions about business and making business decisions. Um, I'd like to see more information about impacts. Um, And I'd like to see um, more effective ways for us to access information. So Mm -hmm. integrated reporting, capital markets that are concerned with more than just finance, but understanding the costs and consequences of what we do. So that's rather vague. Um, In the book, I talk about specific strategies that seem to be making progress, rankings, um, indicators, shareholder activity. And then I also talk about corporate sustainability and the rhetoric around that reporting. If that were standardized, um, so there's exciting news out of the SEC on climate disclosures, right? Mm -hmm. If we're asking for this kind of information, ultimately it'll become actionable. It becomes the kind of thing that if I've got to report it, I've got to manage it, I've got to do better. If I am a business leader, if I'm a consumer or investor, I can know who's doing better, who's doing worse, and push for business to be better on all of our behalf, so... You know, before I, I turn to Marissa, I realized, uh, you know, I didn't explain to people like how you find corporate information. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you care and you want to know, you want to see these SEC um, ESG reports, you know, what are some resources that just everyday people can use to find this corporate information? Do you want to do you answer, Eric, or I could? I mean, you can go to the SEC website, but, you know, are there other, you know, are there, are there resources out there that people can use to find human rights information? A question for me. Oh, okay. Yes. Yes. Um, So there are industry specific rankings and indicators. Um, One organization, the World Benchmark Initiative has been doing industry sector by industry sector analyses of um, what different businesses are doing. Um, There's another indicator called Know the Chain, which is looking specifically at forced labor in different industry sectors, apparel and footwear, agriculture. Um, There's a ranking digital rights indicator um, that is looking at how different technology and telecommunications and social media firms are treating your private information or doing information takedowns. So there are different civil society organizations that are becoming information generators, information gatherers. Um, You can look to those. Um, 
you can look to organizations like As You Sow, who are putting together um, proxy monitors. The Interfaith Council on Corporate Responsibility also has an annual proxy report. Um, what are the proposals that are out there? How should you vote? Um, who should you be talking to? What are the questions you should be asking your investment advisor who can be doing some of this on your behalf? Um, for the consumer sector, um, that is more heterogeneous and broad. Um, so I don't have anything specific that I'm looking to there, but um, there are always social movements um, popping up. The hashtag activism around a particular business um, violation or potential risk. So um, I think the tools are coming online in that space, but looking to um, these organizations that are translating what's happening at places like the Securities and Exchange Commission would be a good start. Absolutely. And I'll also say, you know, everyone can do this. You know, if you are interested in a company, you know, Google and go to the company's website and every single publicly traded company has a tab called investor relations. And on that investor relations tab, they, I don't know if it's SEC required or not, but most of them do, um, will put up their SEC filings for you to link through. So if you don't want to go to the SEC website and, and click through it, and I often, I make my students go there, but you know, if you're just an average person and you want to find out about a business, go to their corporate website, publicly traded company, it's going to have an investor relations tab and it's going to have their specific information. In addition to all the sources that Erica talked about, which is not their spin on the information, but it is third parties putting it together for you. So the internet is your friend and it is a tool that you can use to get informed. It's not as hard as it was back in my day when I had to go to a library, right? You can actually just get on the internet and do it. Uh, now, Marissa, you're waving a magic wand. What would you want? Um, uh, two things, private sector and public sector. Private sector is I would actually like to see just a lot more, and I think that's happening already, but more co-ops, whether that's, you know, mm. co-op grocery stores, worker co-ops, um, because that is actually what gives all of us an opportunity to engage in the shareholder activism that Erica has been talking about. Um, and so it's maybe it requires some divestment from the bigger corporations that you give your business to now, but you are then reinvesting in some of these smaller businesses, which I think actually solves for um, greater human rights accountability, greater social economic development and poor community, poor communities, communities of color, immigrant communities, et cetera. Um, and just adds to sort of like community empowerment. Um, so that's private sector, public sector, public law. I, if I could wave a magic wand, I think that the U.S. would, we're talking about antitrust, I think we would see the U.S. be forced to give up some of its, its market share at the U.N. Right now, it has yeah. 20% of the budget. Um, it is participating in what is essentially an or oligarchy on the Security Council. And it picks and chooses how it wants to sign on to treaties, right? Multilateral treaties, U.N. treaties, U.N. conventions, lots of exceptions, what we call RUDs, like well, lots of exceptions. Like we, we you know, we want to sign the, the Convention for Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, but not actually do anything about it. So if I could wave a magic wand, I would make the U.S. a better world partner um, and have it follow the lead of other con countries um, 
um, the countries that we as the U.S. as Americans like to hold accountable all the time, right, but don't want to be accountable to. So that's what that would do. Oh, can I, I second that? Um, I also want to add there is a draft treaty on business and human rights that's been put forward by Ecuador and South Africa. Um, wow. Predictably, the United States is not participating in that and has re- objected to it under all kinds of administrations. Um, so I would echo Marissa's point. It would be wonderful to see more commitment on behalf of the U.S. government to be active participants in these conversations about human rights and not detract from the development and robust evolution of human rights. Um, The human right to a clean and healthy environment is right now coming out of the Human Rights Council. That will go to the full General Assembly. Um, We have yet to see statement from the United States on that. So that would be a a real advance. So I I too would wave a magic wand to have us um, walk the talk. Well, and I think it's interesting that, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt is so involved in the development of this, um, but the United States has not been an active participant. And I'll, I'll, I'll kick this one to Marissa because you are my, you're a, you, you do so much with the UN. Um, just explain to folks, you know, what have been some of the reasons why the U.S. has not been or that they give for not being as, as active of a participant? Well, they're incredibly active, incredibly active, yeah. just not cooperative. Um, American exceptionalism is at play. And actually in the founding of, one of the reasons why Eleanor Roosevelt took such a leadership role was because she wanted to ensure American exceptionalism and privilege, right? So she wrestled to have the UN headquartered in the United States, right? And, right, had a bunch of civil rights activists labeled as communists. Like, she, she did a lot of work. It just wasn't all as positive as she gets credit for, right? Um, and so the legacy of that complicated work that she was doing, right? One hand is advancing human rights and like helping to draft the UDHR, which I said is a beautiful, beautiful document. I encourage everyone to read it, right? And then wish that it were binding, right? Um, on the other hand, there she was really engineering American geopolitical power. She was in, crafting that we would be oh, the world superpower post-World War II. She was extremely effective in what she did. And that um, American super dominance at the UN um, has held to this day. Um, from everything from the structure of the UN to the systems and procedures for filing complaints um, and just the incredible lobbying power that the U.S. has in keeping um, even blocks of countries from being able to um, move certain issues forward. But um, even that is changing. There has been activism within the UN and um, outside of the public that lobbies the UN. And so let's keep hope alive. I like a positive end. And I just want to say that the ideas that are in Erica George's book really show us how we can use the private sector. Like we don't have to wait for the UN and we don't have to wait for the US government. And even some of the things we've said today about activist investors and even what you can do as a small investor and getting information and what you can do as a consumer, as a stakeholder shows that we don't have to wait for the the US to be more cooperative with the UN. We can demand a lot as consumers and as individuals um, to, to see the change, right? It's like, be the change you want to see. Well, 
all you got to do is go shopping at the right place. Yeah. <laughs> Buy the change right? you want to see. <laughs> Buy the change you want to see, right? That's a great right. closing message. So I just want to thank my guests today who are both dear friends. And I'm just so excited to get a chance to have this conversation. Thank you all for tuning in to Getting Common. If you ever miss an episode, you can catch the rebroadcast anywhere that podcasts are played from Spotify to Apple Podcasts. You can also check on the Voice America website um, and on our YouTube channel. Uh, feel free to send me emails through the show page or to reach out on social media. I am at Carla C on all platforms. Thank you again for listening. And thank you so much, Marissa and Erica, for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Please join us again next Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another thoughtful discussion.